Chapter Seventeen of *The Trail of the Hawk*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. *Trail of the Hawk* by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Seventeen. On a grassy side street of Oakland, California, was Jones and Erickson's Garage, gasoline and repairs, motorcycles and bicycles for rent. Oakland agents for Bristol Moignitos. It was perhaps the cleverest garage in Oakland, in Berkeley, for the quick repairing of motorcycles, and newlywed owners of family runabouts swore that Carl Erickson could make a carburetor out of a tomato can and even be agreeable when called on for repairs at 2 a.m. He had doubled old Jones's business during the nine months, February to November 1909, that they had been associated. Carl believed that he thought of nothing but work and the restaurants and theaters of civilization. No more rolling for him until he had gathered moss. He played that he was a confirmed businessman. The game had hypnotized him for nearly a year. He whistled as he cleaned plugs and glanced out at the eucalyptus trees in the sunny road without wanting to run away. But just today, just this glorious rain-cleansed November day, with high blue skies and sunlight on the feathery pepper trees, he was going to sneak away from work and have a celebration all by himself. He was going down to San Mateo to see his first flying machine. November 1909. Bloit had crossed the English Channel. McCurdy had, in March 1909, calmly pegged off sixteen miles in the Silver Dart biplane. Poulin had gone eighty-one miles and had risen to the incredible height of five hundred feet. To be overshadowed by overwrites sixteen hundred feet, Glenn Curtis had won the Gordon Bennett Cup at Rames. California was promising to be the van of aviation. She was remembering that her own Montgomery had been one of the pioneers. Los Angeles was planning a giant meet in January. A dozen cow-pasture aviators were taking credulous young reporters aside and confiding that next day or next week, or at latest next month, they would startle the world by ascending in machines on entirely new and revolutionary principles on which they had been working for ten years. Sometimes it was for eight years they had been working. But in always they remarked that the model from which the machine will be built has flown perfectly in the presence of some of the most prominent men in the locality. These machines had a great deal to do with the mysterious qualities of gyroscopes and helicopters. Now, Dr. Josiah Bagby, the San Francisco physician and oil-burning marine engine magnate, had really brought three genuine Beloit monoplanes from France, with Carmo, graduate of the Beloit School and licensed French aviator for working pilot, and was experimenting with them at San Mateo near San Francisco, where the grandsons of the 49ers play polo. It had been rumored that he would open a school for pilots and build Beloit-type monoplanes for the American market. Carl had lain awake for an hour the night before picturing the wonder of flight that he hoped to see. He rose early, put on his politest garments, and informed grumpy old Jones that he was off for a frolic. He wasn't sure, he said, whether he would get drunk or get married. He crossed the bay, glad of the seagulls, the glory of Mount Tamalpais, and San Francisco's hill behind Ferry Hill. He consumed a Pacific Sunday with the feeling of holiday and hummed Mandalay. 
On the trolley to San Mateo he read over and over the newspaper account of Bagby's monoplanes. Walking through San Mateo, Carl swung his cocky green hat and scanned the sky for aircraft. He saw none. But as he tramped out to the flying field, he began to run at the sight of two wide cambered wings, rounded at the ends like the end of one's thumb, attached to a fragile long body of open framework. Men were gathered about it. A man with a short, crisp beard and a tight woolen toboggan cap was seated in the body, the wings stretching on either side of him. He scratched his beard and gesticulated. A mechanic revolved a propeller, and the unmuffled motor burst out with a whose music rocked Carl's heart. Black smoke hurled back along the machine. The draught tore at the hair of two men crouched on the ground holding the tail. They let go. The monoplane ran forward along the ground and suddenly was off it. A foot up, ten feet up, really flying. Carl could see the aviator calmly staring ahead, working his arms as the machine turned and slipped away over distant trees. His first impression of an aeroplane in the air had nothing to do with birds or dragonflies or the miracle of it, because he was completely absorbed in an impression of Carl Erickson, which he expressed after this wise, I am going to be an aviator. And later, yes, that's what I've always wanted. He joined the group in front of the hangar tent. Working men were hammering on wooden sheds back of it. He recognized the owner, Dr. Bagby, from his pictures. A lean man of sixty, with a sallow complexion, a gray mustache, like a rat-tail, a broad black countrified slouch hat on the back of his head, a gray sack suit which would have been respectable but unfashionable at any period whatsoever. He looked like a country lawyer who had served two terms in the state legislature. His shoes were black, but not blackened, and had no toe-caps the comfortable shoes of an oldish man. He was tapping his teeth with a thin corded forefinger and remarking in a monotonous voice to a Mexican youth, plump and polite and well-dressed, "'Well, Tony, I guess those plugs were better. I guess those plugs were better, eh?' Bagby turned to the others, marveled at them as if trying to remember who they were, and said slowly, "'I guess those plugs were all right, eh?' The monoplane was returning, for a time apparently not moving, like a black mark painted on the great blue sky, then soaring overhead, the sharply cut outlines clear as a pen-and-ink drawing, then landing, bouncing on the slightly uneven ground. As the French aviator climbed out, Dr. Bagby's sad face brightened, and he suggested, "'Those plugs went better, monsieur, eh?' "'I've been thinking. Maybe you've been giving her too rich a mixture.' While they were wiping the gnome engine, Carl shyly approached Dr. Bagby. He felt frightfully an outsider, wondered if he could ever be intimate with the magician as was the plump Mexican youth they called Tony. He said, Uh, once or twice, and blurted, I want to be an aviator. Yes, yes, said Dr. Bagby, gently glancing away from Carl to the machine. He went over, twanged a supporting wire and seemed to remember that someone had spoken to him. He returned to the fevered Carl, walking sidewise, staring all the while at the resting monoplane, so efficient yet so quiet now and slender and feminine. Yes, yes, so you'd like to be an aviator. So you'd like, like, hey boy, don't touch that, to be an aviator. Yes, yes, they all would, my boy, they all would. 
Well, maybe you can be some day. Maybe you can be some day. I mean now, right away. Heard you were going to start a school. Want to join? Hmm. Signed, Doctor Bagby, tapping his teeth, jingling his heavy gold watch chain, brushing a trail of cigar ashes from a lapel, then staring abstractly at Carl, who was turning his hat swiftly round and round, so flushed of cheeks, so excited of eye, that he seemed twenty instead of twenty-four. Yes, yes. So you'd like to join? But uh, that would cost you five hundred dollars, you know. Right. Well, you go talk to Monsieur about it. Monsieur Camaru. He is a very good aviator. He is a licensed aviator. He knows Henry Farman. He studied under Berloit. He is the boss here. I'm just the poor old fellow that stands around. Sometimes Monsieur takes me up for a little ride on our machine. Sometimes he takes me up. But he is the boss. He is the boss, my friend. You'll have to go see him. And Dr. Bagby walked away, apparently much discouraged about life. Carl was not discouraged about life. He swore that now he would be an aviator, even if he had to go to Dayton or Hammondsport or France. He returned to Oakland. He sold his share in the garage for $1,150. Before the end of January, he was enrolled as a student in the Bagby School of Aviation and Monoplane Building. On an impulse, he wrote of his wondrous happiness to Gertie Cowles, but he tore up the letter. Then proudly he wrote to his father that the lost boy found himself, for the first time in all his delicatory writing of home letters, he did not feel impelled to defend himself. End of chapter 17